today on That's Classic, we have somebody on that I have to say for me personally, it is an awesome honor because I always just uh, love this actor. Um, we have none other than Paul Michael Glazer, who played Starsky on Starsky and Hutch. So, Paul, thanks a bunch for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, heck yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, so to start right out of the gates, uh, tell me this. Did you have an actual audition for Starsky and Hutch? I mean, I, I watched a lot of stuff and I've researched you, but I was trying to figure that out. Did you have like an actual like, you know, call in and the whole thing? Yeah, bit? I, uh, I, 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 I read the script and I thought, okay, I don't think it'll become a series, but I need some good footage of myself. So uh, I had an appointment. I went to Fox and uh, I got there and the office was filled with people who were reading. So I, I sat down on the floor and I uh, took out some walnuts in my pocket and I said, I ate a couple and then I went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the secretary woke me up and said, are you here for reading? And the place was empty. And I said, yeah. She said, well, come on in. So I went in and I met the director and the producer and everything and opened the page. And I said, where do you want to start? And they told me, and I reached in my pocket and I took a walnut and I cracked it. I said, eat it. I said, go ahead. And so I read about a page, page and a half. And they said, that's fine. Thank you. <laughs> and the next, the next day I came back and uh, I knew David from, you know, around Hollywood. So I, I, we, we saw each other and we went in and we met Spelling and Goldberg and that was it. Wow. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, talk about one of those moments, like where it's destined. Not, not only that, when I think of Starsky, by the way, that's like something Starsky might've done and <laughs> just gone in there and just fell asleep. I mean, I, I love it. <laughs> well, you know, you want to, keep the character as close to you as you can yeah well you kept it really close um so actually since you brought up david um when was the first time that you met him because i know you had been out in new york and then you came out here what where did you see him in the in the when i for when i first came to new york i was uh, uh i was uh put up for a showcase for uh agents Mm -hmm. uh, by uh, 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 Rene Valente, who was at Screen Gems. And so um, I uh, I went there, and that's where I met David. He was doing uh, a, a, a scene from Hatful of Rain with uh, Michael, I can't remember his last name, lovely guy. And, <laughs> um, and uh, so they did their scene, which was all very dramatic and very good. And I did my monologue, which was really quite bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we met. And then, uh, you know, we'd run into each other here and there. And then when I was on the coast doing guest shots on TV shows, I'd run into him and, you know, on the back lot and like that. And we kind of knew each other and like that. Was it, did you have a report together or was it more like, you know, hey, David, how are you? Good. See ya. See ya, Paul. Basically. Wow. Wow. Basically. But um, I, 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 I admired him. He was, a, he was an interesting character, interesting yeah. guy. 
Yeah. Did did you um you know I I in reading and looking into stuff I saw that you 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 know I mean look you guys had an incredible chemistry on camera but I I've heard you say that offset it was kind of like and you're each into your own worlds what where well first of all why did you feel like it it was like that well I think that we both had you know at that age uh, and uh, and dealing with that that uh, that work. Uh, not only just the work, but I was, I, I think I was pretty emotionally mature and I, I don't think David was much better than that. And so whatever stuff we had going on inside made for a kind of shyness and, uh, and a reserve and, you know, and so we, we do our work or we, and we might communicate about the work and everything like that. But, uh, uh, you know, we, it was it was very interesting you know but then when you start acting and start working um you know a, a lot of that stuff comes out and i guess that's what made for the chemistry yeah i felt like when when you were on screen i mean what always engaged me is i always felt like you and david had like i don't know how to explain it it was almost like there was something else going on underneath between the two of you and yeah. you could even though the scene was going on, even though the action was going on, there always felt like there was something else going on between you guys. Well, I think there was. I, I mean, I don't think we could articulate it to each other, but uh, uh, we knew when we were on, we were, you know, when we were functioning well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and then there were those times when we weren't functioning well where we'd get into each other's face. But basically, um, uh, it was a, a kind of understanding, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I was the more extrovert, emotive type, and he was the, 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 the reserved blonde, you know, <laughs> and, and so he, you know, he'd, uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. Uh, uh, I never really tried to describe the relationship very specifically. Mm -hmm. um, to whatever extent we respected each other, that was there. To whatever extent we may have admired each other, we never owned it. Hmm. We just, you know, and, and we both just tried to do our best. We our commitment was basically, if we're going to do this as a series, let's just make it the best we can. I mean, we went to a screening of the pilot on the 20th century lot, and I was standing outside the theater with David, just as the people were beginning to come out, and I said to him, thank God we're only doing a pilot. <laughs> and when they picked it up, he and I just, we decided, well, let's make this the best we can make it. And so, you know, uh, to whatever degree, uh, each of us had our issues with emotional maturity and that impacted the way I communicated to the producers and uh, my dissatisfaction with the scripts and, and all like that. So it wasn't the healthiest situ situation. I was, they, they call me difficult. But then since then I found that any actor who goes into a meeting in Hollywood and displays any intelligence whatsoever is thought of as difficult. <laughs>
Of course. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I I do. Um, did um, what you know? I since, since you brought that up too, I know that something I was surprised about, which I did not know as a viewer, by the way, is that you had actually after the first season said, "I'm done. I'm out of here." What? Yeah. What? What was it that that was it because you were you didn't feel like they were hearing you as far as what you wanted to do with the character? What was it? I think it was a combination of things. It was that they weren't hearing me. Uh, we found out that they were uh, uh, not giving us all our fan mail, and, and we were uh, what they 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 were uh, they circumvented a couple of you know. Uh, uh, things on the SAG contract in terms of pay, but uh, it was it, it was it was very very hard work, and we felt like the scripts were not giving us enough substance to feel like we could. You know, you always felt like you came away going, "Well, that could have been a lot better," but. You know, uh, but we were doing the best we could. I, I don't think that my trying to get out of the show was entirely the fault of the shows, though. I think that uh, I was working through some stuff myself, very personally, and and, uh, and uh, it was uh, when when the show became celebrated as a as a big hit, mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, then then it it. it it became really crystal clear to me uh, that uh, I had kind of made a deal with the devil. Mm -hmm. And the story I tell on myself is that when I was in New York uh, uh, doing a, a soap opera at daytime and Broadway show at night, and Norman Jewison came into town to do a, a audition me for Fiddler. And I said to my agent, I said, I'm too old for that role. Mm -hmm. It's Victorian Russia. She's real about seventeen. I was twenty-seven at the time. Wow! So, I uh, and I met with Norman. Interestingly enough, and I knocked on the door. He opened the door and he said, "Who are you?" I said, "At the time, I was Michael Glazer. I had changed my name because there already was Paul Glazer." Yeah. And uh, he said, "You're too old for the role." I said, "That's what I said." I said well, <laughs> Sorry, come in anyways. Come in anyways and read. And I read and danced them around the suite a little bit. And, and he ended up flying me out for a screen test. Well, the very first thing I did, this is a joke I tell them myself. The very first thing I did was I went to Bally's Suit Store on 6th Avenue in New York, and I bought a pair of white loafers. Why? Well, let me say that on Friday nights, while I was in New York struggling as an actor and then slowly moving up, the other actors and I, we'd meet each other, like at Pat O'Brien's or Joe Allen's, and we'd mm -hmm. drink our unemployment checks. And, and uh, you know, and often it was said, oh, I wouldn't go to Hollywood, man. I wouldn't live out there. I would go out and do a gig, but I'm not going to sell out. I'm an artist. Yeah. Right? And never answering the question really to ourselves, honestly, how much of us, what part of us wanted to be famous, wanted to be a celebrity, wanted to be a big success. 
Yeah. And so that's what the white loafers stand for. And when I, when the show became a hit, and I realized that all of a sudden I was being celebrated as the next thing to slice toast or whatever that expression is. Right. I just, uh, I went, oh my God, I've done it. And, and, and I don't think I really articulated it to myself, but I started to live that experience. And it, was, and it was scary. It was a scary experience being celebrated. It was something that I, that I was, uh, I didn't feel like it warranted it. Wow. You know, I played a character on a soap opera and I, you know, and, and all the time in retrospect, I was really developing a persona, mm -hmm. you know, from my own person, you know, in terms of the, the, uh, the, the, the boy man, the, 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 the gullible, vulnerable, you know, many faceted emotions. And, um, which is Starsky, which that's right. So, you know, it was, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, it scared me, it scared me to be celebrated for that. And, um, and on top of that, you know, it was the uh, it was a lot of work, but that's okay. We we did it. We're proud of it. When I came back to the show mm -hmm. after I realized that I wasn't going to win the lawsuit, the uh, no judge would, as right mind, in danger of hit show like that. So I came back and I said to the producers, I said, "Look, write David eighty percent of the show, me twenty percent of the show. I want to direct." Wow. Wow. And they said, well, yeah, he'll become a star. I said, that's okay. I want to direct. So I came back and I directed five episodes over the course of the next three years. Had you done Had you done uh, directing before on television? No, I had a graduate degree in directing in theater, but that didn't, that was, that was a joke. <laughs> right. right. In you comparison know. to doing that. That's a big, that's yeah. a big uh, deal to just step in behind the camera like that. Yeah. Well, I, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I, I just felt like there was something I really not only could do it, but, but wanted to do. And uh, yeah. as it turned out, directing became an outlet for so many, so much of my creativity, you know, <laughs> I was doing a lot of photography. That's why I get to compose things that, I get to set moods and I get to work with actors and teach them. And I get to work with a crew and, and race the clock, which is what you always do when you're, when you're mm -hmm. filming and yeah. that com camaraderie that exists in there. I got to move the camera. I love motion. I love dance. I love action. Um, I got to uh, uh, use music. I uh, got to do so many things. So, cause an actor on a film set is basically you're waiting for the, you know it's like watching paint dry right and all of a sudden you know six eight ten twelve times a day you're getting up you're doing nothing and all of a sudden you're doing 90 miles an hour and then you're doing nothing oh yeah and you sit on your hands a lot and you know you, you try to find creative ways to stay busy but uh what, what it's, a, it? it's a it's oh i'm sorry didn't mean to interrupt no you. go ahead, go ahead no, i was just gonna say what was it like to direct david like that first time where it's like you're looking in the lens and now you're directing, you know, basically your, your, you know, your cohort. What, what was that like? Well, Both first of, of all, I had very strong opinions about 
you know, wh- you know what we should do and could do and you know like that that was number one uh, the, the story I like to tell on David is that I directed a, a show called Blues something blues some, some, no, something blues and it was a relationship that David had to have with this jazz woman. A woman was a jazz singer. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember this episode. Yeah. And and the actress was a really lovely actress and had a lovely voice and really had a good spirit and everything. But she wasn't your classic Hollywood beauty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and David David came up to me and he said, "What have you done? What have you done? What, what am I supposed to do here?" I said, do your best, you know, and because I always believed, <laughs> like I was, I was directing uh, uh, a show. Uh, I was directing a show where, where uh, Hutches with a mother, the grandmother and a granddaughter, the granddaughter's like in her twenties mm-hmm. and, and uh, Hutches stuck in the house there posing as a medic or paramedic. And I'm circling the house, trying to break in and at the climax. I break in. But just before I break in, there's this moment where things are really getting sticky. And so I decided to put large film magazines on the camera so I could shoot a long scene. Mm-hmm. So I had the guys put long, uh, big magazines on the camera. And then I rehearsed with the actors. And I rehearsed the whole scene. And then I shot the scene, I'd work on one actor, pass it off to another actor, and you know, and one single yeah. to a two shot or sing. And I worked around the room and I did all that. But the girl, the girl I was saving to the end. And she kept and she was she she was uh she was Kitty Harold was her name. And she was hadn't acted that much before and she kept coming up to me and saying I don't know what to do I don't know what to do what do I do what do I do I'm lost I'm lost I don't know what to do wow it's okay it's all right it's all right and when I came to shoot her she started in again and she talked for you know she went on for about 10 seconds and I motioned to the guys I said roll the camera and they rolled the camera and I looked at her and I said just do what you feel just let me have all of that fear. It's okay to not know what you're doing. And we shot the scene. And when I edited the scene, I ended up editing it all around her performance because she really carried carried the the the, 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 the money there. And um, it was a very interesting experience because you know when you work in front of a camera, mm-hmm. it's all about telling the truth, right? When, when I acted. When I, when I played Stasky, I got into a habit where before every take, when the director called action, I look into the camera and I say, hi. <laughs> because that lens is just staring at you, you know? Right, right. And you, you either own what, you, what, what is or you don't. And, and, um, uh, and, and, and so it is, it's a very intimate medium and it requires you to, uh, you know, really try to, be as present as you can be with what's happening for you at that moment and um and that's something that i learned over the years and so whenever i found myself in a directing situation where 
an actor was having a problem, I usually made the problem what the scene was about That's in great. some way or another. Wow. I appreciate that. I mean, I have an acting background. I got to tell you, I, I appreciate that. Like that's, it's, I, I get it. You're right. Because you, there's many times where exactly, that's exactly, I would have loved to have had somebody say that to me. Um, so uh, I I was curious too, you, you had actually said in other interviews that you hated the car. You were like, I hated the car. Why did you hate the car so much? Well, first of all, it was ludicrous that Sasuke Nuts would have a red and white, you know, I called up the striped tomato. And um, number one, number two, it was a pig. It had all these great sound effects they put in afterwards, but it had a terrible suspension. And the first year it had bench seats. Jake and David would always end up in my lap when I took a turn on it. And, uh, you know, uh, the stunt coordinator, Charlie Paterni, taught me most of what i needed to know to do i did a lot of my driving stunts not wasn't all that, of them but a lot of them yeah wasn't that kind of and, fun oh yeah that was always fun but you know it was it was it was a, a real it was a it was it's just as a pig it was a big american fat heavy sloppy suspension not power no power you know wow did it ever get dangerous at all any 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 experiences where it got a little something yeah, well i've told the story before but it's uh, it, to me it's the fun most fun story about it so david and i got to a point where we would do our, our all of our traveling shots interior car dialogue we do those shots on friday afternoons after they'd finish with the guest star mm. so that usually meant it was late friday afternoon the sun was going down you were fighting the light. And what would happen was we'd get in the car. We'd, we'd gotten to the point where they said the sound man didn't want to drive with us. <laughs> so we would turn on the sound, turn on the lights, turn on the camera, clap our hands, and start do the scene. Oh, my gosh. So on this one particular day, and Friday was always kind of a gnarly day because they let, you, they let them film till 1145 at night. So you, you, you're already tired from the whole week tonight. So we we got got into the car, and uh, we're both kind of wired, grumpy or whatever. And we had this motorcycle cop who was going to accompany us, and he was an old. You know, a lot of the cops on these movie sets they're ex cops, but they pick up the job as a motorcycle cop. Oh, so he yeah. was an over, overweight motorcycle cop grumpy and he says, okay you follow me we're going down motor avenue and I'll, I'll tell you when we do it i said oh okay fine so we start driving down motor avenue and the traffic is really terrible and the thing we're supposed to film is where we're riding along in the car having a conversation and the radio goes and it's doby and he's calling us you know, quick come back and we have to hook our u-turn yeah you know and uh we rigged the, uh, the 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 car so the emergency brake, which basically was just the rear tires, was like a pedal brake. It wasn't didn't have a ratchet that would stick. It oh would, wow! You'd hit it and it would release. And so what you could do is you control you could control what the back tires were doing. So if you were driving, and you hit that and you, and you did a little quarter turn on the steering wheel and you hit that 
that the rear end would slide around. Yeah, that was like classic Starsky and Hutch movie. Yeah, yeah. and it's, uh, it's called a Brody. And so um, we get in the car and there's traffic all over the place. And this motorcycle cop is out about three cars ahead of us. He's going, oh, he's, he's paying the ass. And <laughs> the, the scene wasn't a great scene. It was not, it was just, a, you know, so I just, at one point, I said, screw this. And I turn on the sound, and I turn on the lights, and I turn on the camera. James said, what are you doing? I said, action. And I took a right turn down this small street. And the street was lined with cars on either side. There's no way you could turn around and go back. Oh, Nevertheless, oh throw, throw a Brody. So we're, we're flying down the street, and we're making like we're having, playing the scene. And then we make it like, there's Captain Dovey, and the last second I see an opening between two cars. And I hit, I crank the wheel, and I and I hit the emergency brake, and I go into a slide, and I hit the curb. I turn, the car gets turned around, but I hit the curb, oh. and I go off the curb onto a lawn. And uh, and I keep driving. And I, and I'm, my um, the accelerator's to the floor oh my gosh the tires are digging a hole in the lawn <laughs> and i look past david and up on at the house is this woman who just got back from the supermarket and she had two huge bags of groceries that she just dropped at her feet <laughs> they're like looking at us. and i started laughing and david looked and he started laughing and we left the cameras front. we didn't know we forgot the camera was going, and we we laughed to when we almost peed ourselves. So we just laughed and laughed and laughed. Well, on Monday, the network would get to see what you shot on Friday. Oh no! So that's how we lost our insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, it was always you know a, a uh, uh, like a trailer pulling the car. Oh how funny i mean yeah. that is really funny that is why i think i loved the show so much though is because i'm telling you i you could feel this kind of like slight wackiness between you and david that was like i don't know it's like it was like two big kids it just it just was so fun like i can believe that happened That's yeah just, we had a good time wow we had a good time we had a good time on camera yeah you know yeah did did you by the way how did you um and i should tell this story by the way be, beforehand too look i actually you know i met you in in aspen colorado when i was 14 years old i was in a kentucky fried chicken and my parents had taken me there to ski and my mom was in line and i looked over and i see you sitting there and i believe you were with your sister by the way and you you stop. I mean, I stopped and I can't, I can't, I think I might've just said hi, or maybe asked for your autograph. I don't know, but you blew me away. You actually didn't just say, you know, Hey, sure. Whatever you said, Hey, why don't you have a seat? And you actually sat there and talked with me with your sister. And I, I, for me, I, I thought so highly of you as it was <laughs> in a character. And then for you to do that for me, it just said so much about you. And it, uh, 
it it seriously affected me. I I still I mean I've always treated people no matter what level they're at what in whatever just mutual respect and that was just such a kind thing to do to a 14 year old kid. I mean it really meant a lot to me. But on the other side of the coin, I know that you also had a, uh, a difficult time dealing with that stardom, that that instant where everybody knows you're around. How, in general, how did you deal with that? As best I could. Yeah, yeah. My, 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 this is not, uh, this is a little known fact. My doctor, my GP, mm-hmm. I had so much anxiety that he had me running morning and night. I'd run about three to four miles every morning and every night. Wow. Yeah. Did it help? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. That's funny. Well, yeah, I could imagine, you know, that's one thing too. I, you know, I, I was looking at your background, like you said, you know, you had been bartending, you, you really were, were what I would call like an actor's actor. Like you were doing the work and, and all of that. And then when you hit it, uh, that big is it does it I don't know does it take a little piece of you I mean is it is it just hard to like be who you wanted to be so to speak well that's the point of the story I told at the beginning of this interview mm-hmm. it's very difficult uh, you know people would say things like well that's what you wanted or you know because from people on the outside they think that's it that's the cat's meow. I get, I get that brass ring. I'm set for life. Yeah, yeah. And that was part of the fantasy that I did not articulate to myself, in all honesty, when I was younger. And mm. then it happened, and I realized that wasn't it. That didn't make me feel complete. It didn't make me. As a matter of fact, it made me fear that I was less complete. Wow. And and so you know. Uh, then in the later years, you know, you look back on it and you realize that uh, uh, a television actor, is, is, you know, the TV screen is, the close-up of the TV screen is the same size as your head or my head. Right. It's not bigger than life. It's not like theater, like, like the Greek theater or the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not something that's larger than life. And so... What makes the TV screen larger than life is uh, number one, the number of sets there are out there, mm-hmm. and number two, the intimacy with which they exist in people's lives. People have TVs in their bathrooms and their bedrooms and their living rooms, and their dens, yeah. kitchens. Yeah. And whatever they're doing in those rooms, if you're on the screen, you're with them. Hmm. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you become a part of people's lives that is, that is in a way that is not, it's, it's more about, it's not about, you know, it's like, I remember once I met, I was at a, a dinner and I, uh, and, I, and I met, I turned around uh, and I bumped into Cary Grant. Wow. And I couldn't speak. Ah, da, ah, you know, yeah. because he was larger than life. I'd seen him on the big screen. He was larger than life. Right. Uh, TV is, hey, you're da 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 And there's a sense that the, the person has that they know you. Mm-hmm. They've been with you. They spent time with you in the intimacy of their own lives. So 
you're one of the family. Wow. But you don't feel that. You just feel you feel the uh, idolization. You feel the, the you know, uh, uh, you know. My I'm one of <laughs> one of the sayings I used to have that I tried to explain to journalists and they didn't understand it. Yeah. People for the most part didn't understand it. But it really comes down to the notion that people create their gods in order to eat them. If you think about that, you mean you create you know you 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 Christ, the communion wafer, mm-hmm. the blood of Christ. I mean, you, right? You you, you create a, a celebrity and you want his autograph, you want his picture, you want a piece of his clothing, you want to shake his hand, you want to, yeah, you want, yeah, you want to be part of it, yeah, you want to be part of it and be part of you, so you want to eat him, you want to eat him in a non-literal sense, maybe, but that's right. So, you know, it's like you wake up one morning and you're like, oh my God, I'm the virgin of the volcano. <laughs> They're going to throw me in. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a lot to take on. That's a lot. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So l- let me ask you this. We're, you know, you went on then. So you sign on, you say, great, I'm going to, you know, you're going to let me direct and, you know, awesome. But you do three more seasons in the, I guess the most tactful way I can put this were you kind of suffering through those three seasons? Because I didn't see it as a viewer, but I'm wondering, were you? The times I was. It was a difficult road. It was, it was the times I was, but that was my job. Mm-hmm. But did you in any way incorporate that into your Starsky persona? Like, you know. I incorporated everything I could find in my Starsky because my Starsky persona was me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, people I mean, always say, "Hey, did you have say in the character?" I feel like you not only had say, but I, I felt like there were pieces of you there. Well, you know, the thing that the people need to realize is that because the camera is such a truth teller, the only way you really communicate is if you're being real. Uh, and and being uh, real with your feelings and like that. And so if you're playing a bad guy, what do you do? What you do is you get in touch with that part of you that understands being a bad guy, Mm -hmm. that understands that level of anger and that level of fear. And if you're playing a good guy, you do that the same thing. You try to emphasize the features of the character that you can discover in your own person i got you i got you did you did you uh what got you through those three seasons honestly i mean was it the directing or what you know were you drawing on other things i'm sure i drew on all kinds of things you know my wife got me through my my uh uh Exercise regimen got me through my. I gave my word, so I had to, I had to fulfill it. 
Um, by the way, the other the other iconic things that come up are the sweater that you wore. I mean, if I don't ask you about that, I'll have people write in and say, what the heck? Why didn't you say something about Cersei's sweater? That was actually, was that like your idea? Was that like, did you actually wear a sweater like that? I bought that sweater in uh, Alvarado Street in L.A. That's a Mexican street. Yeah, sure. Wow. So that was actually yours. Wow. Yeah. And they, they, I mean, that, that just, by the way, were you like in a lot of cases, was it your clothes? Like, was it like, oh, well, this is what I like to wear. So I'm going to wear it as Starsky. It wasn't my clothes. Uh, you know, it was all their clothes. They bought them. But I said, I, I gave them, I said, look, I'm going to be in this costume, if you will, for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 12 hours a day, yeah. 14 hours a day. I want to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. so that's all i cared about was being comfortable wow wow that's so funny because that and the jacket are so iconic with your character it's just so funny yeah yeah wow so going the other one that i noticed is you did miami vice you directed miami vice and where did that um where did that come into play how did how did you end up directing michael mann was the story editor on uh starsky and hutch oh wow Wow. And so when Michael uh, got that show, we were having lunch one day, and he asked me if I'd like to direct a couple of the episodes. I said, sure. It sounded intriguing because it was the first time Miami had had any kind of a production. And, uh, and it was a long ways away from Universal, from the studio. Yeah. So yeah. there was, was very little oversight and a lot of leeway to do whatever the hell you wanted to do. Which is why Michael liked that, I'm sure. Yeah, you you directed uh, one of the famous ones too. The uh, uh, is it uh, Smuggler's Run? That the Blues. Smuggler's, Smuggler's Blues. Blues. That's right. That's uh, that's that's one of the most. I don't know. Definitely in the top when people think of Miami Vice. What what was it like, by the way, to direct Don Johnson and uh, Philip Michael Thomas? They were dealing with the the same thing that I had dealt with becoming a hit i tried to explain what i understood about it to michael thomas and he nodded his head but he 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 was uh he had other things on his mind uh and uh you know don heard me but uh i mean i like don i like i i i, I like things about him uh, he could be difficult, and I said, and I'd ask him why. Why do you? Why are you doing this? I mean, I understand how you feel, but it's just a job. Mm -hmm. Just a job. You, you, you know, you go in there, and you you you're not going to change anything. You're not going to make anybody. Uh, uh, you, you might change some little things, or or. Uh, help them understand something but they're basically doing their job and they work for such long hours there's not a lot they're re receptive to in terms of doing something different or taking chances like mm -hmm. that so you know my attitude was pretty much well this maybe i can get some interesting imagery in the show and uh, like that 
Well, you did a great job. I mean, like I said, that's like one of the most famous episodes that's that's out there. Did what was Thank it you. like? Yeah, you got it. What what was it like to direct in Miami versus when you were in like, you know, the locations in Starsky and Hutch? I believe were primarily L.A. Well, as I said, the studios were on the West Coast, and we were in Miami, so it was a whole different thing. It was not. You didn't have the studio presence. You didn't have that sense of you know they're a phone call away <laughs> it's like right right yeah so you're able you, for so creatively you were probably feeling a little bit a little bit more freer. open freer. Yeah. yeah yeah i get it i totally get it so uh the the other one too is fiddler on the roof i mean um what what was your experience with that because you it sounds like you you played a character that is probably the closest to you know i i don't know i to Starsky or as close to somebody that you really connected with as a character? Um, I don't know what to say about it. You know, recently, or relatively recently, I did a tour of England, Ireland, and Scotland playing Tevye. Yeah, right. Which I always relate to. Tevye is, is 20, 30, 40 years old. Uh, chick when he's older. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think when I did Tevye, I understood an awful lot more about being an actor and, and, uh, and, uh, and like that than I did when I did Fiddler. Fiddler was my first film, my first experience doing film. And we spent, I shot 25 days and I must have been there for three and a half months. Wow. Wow. Because in those days, the studios would keep everybody on location. And we shot in Yugoslavia. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, you had to deal with that element of what I was talking about before, the hurry up and wait. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got into my photography and I got into, I took tennis lessons and but uh, it was, uh, you know, it was like a lot of young people working on a film together in terms of myself and the girls, some of the others that had never really done film before. Mm -hmm. And so we were all kind of newcomers to it, trying to find our way. What a great movie, by the way, <laughs> to be your first movie. Wow. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, no kidding. So you mentioned photography, which I think is a great segue. You have your uh, your art and, and um, you know, your, well, PM Glazer art. Um, what, tell me, tell me about that. Like, how did, how did you, you know, it sounds like it's become actually a pretty important part of your life over the last, you know, I don't know, 10 years or so. I, um, I wrote a book about 12 years ago called Cristalia and the Source of Life. I originally wrote it as a, as a screenplay, but at the time they didn't have the technology to film mm -hmm. what I described. It's a story about a 14-year-old girl 
and her nine-year-old brother. It's the last Christmas when her mom was not well. Last Christmas on the house with the banks kicking them out, and the girl was angry. Has no faith in anything except what you can see and touch. And on Christmas Eve, she and her brother find themselves on a journey through an underground medieval kingdom where everything and everybody are made of minerals and crystals in search oh. of the source of light. That sounds so cool, by the way. <laughs> it is. It's, uh, I'm very proud of it. And it's, wow. you know, it basically embodies everything without being preachy. I made it like an Alice in Wonderland. But I really wanted to share with people what I'd learned about loss and helplessness mm -hmm. in my own journey through my wife and my daughter. Sure. Um, so I worked with an illustrator on that. And, uh, you know, and then I went, he, he, he did most, he, he, did a really, he did a good job, but he didn't do the primary thing I wanted him to do. And uh, so I had to go to a couple of other illustrators to work on those things so that uh, it wasn't a totally gratifying situation. What type of uh, art do you like to create now? What, what have- All what... types, all types. I remember when I was in, in, in uh, college, the, uh, I had a teacher who would tell you, now let's talk about style. Let's talk about style. And it became obvious that there was no such thing as style. What's this style? What's that style? It was a concept that was created by the commercial mind to be able to identify and, 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 uh, uh, and define different artists' work. Yeah. So when I started doing it, I do an abstract, and then I do a representational, and I do an impressionistic, and I, I was all over the map. And people would say, well, you got to find a style that people will know you by. Yeah. I said, no. I said, that's not, I'm, I'm about expressing myself and whatever I'm feeling or whether, whatever moves me at the time. Yeah. And that determines what it's going to be, what it's going to look like. Uh, I was raised, my dad was an architect. And he, his passion was art. He collected a lot of art. So I was raised with all the stuff around me. So. It all had influences on me. <clears throat> and I'm more concerned with, you know, I, I, I try in my art to, to tell a story. Yeah. To raise a question or, or create a, something that, that one can start a dialogue about. Why is that that way? And what does that make me feel? Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I'd learned to be a better draftsman uh, when I was young, because I have to struggle a lot with uh, with my drawing. But um, I just I, I enjoyed telling the story. All right. So if if uh, listeners are out there and they're like, "Oh, I I didn't know that Paul did this," whatever. If they want to uh, purchase your art, I know that I know that you have your website. Is that available, or is it? Yeah, it's uh, my website is pmglazerart.com. Mm -hmm. And that's where it is. And then I also have a merchandising website that my son runs that, that we, we put some of my art on merchandise. Okay. You know, like mugs or pillows or something like that. And that's called 
dudleyroad.com. D-U-D-L-E-Y-R-D.com. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Because people will definitely ask that. Um, so, the, you know, the other, the, other, the other part of your life that um, obviously I, I feel like I, 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 I should at least mention, because I, I know it's a little personal for me too, is the, um, I, your, your wife, uh, Elizabeth, uh, she, you know, I went to the University of Wisconsin and she was in on, on the, uh, on Wisconsin magazine. And that's when I actually became familiar with her and, and, um, pediatric AIDS foundation. Are you still, um, pretty involved in that yourself? Uh, no, I, uh, I'm honorary chair on the board. I'm the honorary chair. I was chairman of the board for, I don't know, five years, six years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, I uh, ended up moving on, and uh, my son is very involved with the foundation right now. Oh, okay, great, yeah. great. Well, you should be very—I mean, obviously a very sad situation, but you should be very proud of what it's accomplished after all these years. It's really something, you know. It's uh, it's a, a, a wonderful tribute to my ex-wife, mm-hmm. my deceased wife, and and to. Uh, it's really about capturing people's hearts and letting them know that uh, that you can have a voice in what's going on and you can have some kind of effect on it. You know, there's some amount of fear and helplessness and resulting hopelessness that exists in the world today is astounding. It's astounding, and 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 um, we don't have a whole lot of training in our Western culture on how to understand or deal with fear. As a matter of fact, in Cristalia, it doesn't directly ask the, ask the question; it does answer it though, which is, "What is the purpose of fear in our lives?" Mm-hmm. Because all too often, the way we relate to fear is that we're the victims of it that it happens to us and you know and uh, the reality is is that uh, it's not who we are we're not scared i often say i say look instead of saying i am scared how about a part of me is scared you can point at that part you can give it a perimeter a color a temperature mm-hmm. that implies that it's a part of you that's not scared be at the tip of your nose your earlobe Right. Something. So that raises the question, what part of you can make the distinction between the part that's scared and the part that's not scared? That is your consciousness, your awareness of your existence, that which allows you to pretend you're on the ceiling and see yourself lying down, sitting down, doing whatever you're mm-hmm. doing, that which allows you to watch yourself feeling the way your clothes feel on you, that which allows you to watch yourself listen to all the sounds that which allows you to watch yourself think. Wow. When you can remember that you have a conscious self, which is who you really are, you are your consciousness. You're not your fear. You're not your thoughts. You're not your feelings. It's your awareness of your existence. When you can remember that you have that place, then you have a choice. You have an ability to reach around and pat yourself on the shoulder and say, good for you. 
Good for you for carrying on in the face of that fear. Good for you for seeking faith. Good for you for keep continuing. And you find compassion for yourself. And by extension, you find compassion for others. So the purpose of fear, or a purpose for fear in our lives, is to remind us that we have a conscious self, an aware self, from where we can choose our hearts. We can choose love. Mm-hmm. We can make that conscious choice. That's our human gift. So that's, in a nutshell, what uh, Castalia and the Source of Light uh, is about. Uh, and, and that's the realization that I, uh, understanding that I came to and struggled to practice every day. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the better you get at something, it's not the easier it gets. The universe says, very good, you got that. Here, try this. <laughs> right. Try this. Try this. So it keeps you going. So, you know, so, so it's, a, you know, but it's, it was a real eye-opener for me. And Dude, that's that what all- I carry. That's what I carry from the whole journey with uh, HIV, AIDS, loss. Mm-hmm. You know, the key, the key fear in our lives is helplessness. We're helpless. We're helpless to know what's after death. We're helpless to avoid death. We're helpless to anytime that helpless button gets hit. Yep. We get scared. Mm-hmm. We're scared of being helpless. Wow. That's quite, that's quite, uh, something to take away from that experience it's it's actually quite uh beautiful um yeah i'm uh, so that and that is what my life is about right now Mm -hmm. i get it i get it well um listen i i i you know i totally appreciate you being on the show uh maybe just ending on just a very light note um let me just ask you did did you enjoy the Starsky and Hutch movie. You said you wanted to end it on a light note? <laughs> well, I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know, it's always a compliment to have something done. You know, the, the imitation is a, is a compliment. Sure. Uh, and uh, I think Ben Stiller, you know, uh, he was a big fan and I think he did a fine job and as did Owen Wilson. Yeah. I had lunch with Ben before he did the film and I asked him what he wanted yeah. to do. Did he want to spoof them, the Starskin Huts? Or did he want to do a real relationship? You know, really find a relationship with Owen yeah. that, that was about that chemistry and about that me for the thing. And, and he, he was very adamant about wanting to do something real. Hmm. However, the director was, fancied himself a comedy director and he wanted to go the other direction. Uh, so uh, one funny story I tell him is in that, in the scene where we show up in my car and I give him the keys and all of a sudden the radio goes, and he goes to answer the radio. I said to the director, I said, wouldn't it be funny? He and I both went to the radio from by the <laughs> other side of the car. 
<laughs> we're getting a little tug of war. <laughs> and the director looked at me and says, no, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> well, I've, I, I'm a terrible poker player because you can read my face a mile away. So Ben saw the expression on my face, called the director aside. And I says, okay, let's try it. So we did it. Ben was very cute. He, he, he's had a hard time keeping a straight face. <clears throat> oh, yeah, we had a good time with it. Oh, we had a good time. I got you. Well, I like that. I like that. Well, listen, I, you know, I, I wish you so much success with your art. And I, I did check out your site. I thought, I thought there was some amazing stuff there. The range is pretty. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Anybody who has any children in their life from six years to 14, 15, they should get them Crystallia. You know, I wrote it uh, so that it could be taken down from the shelf and read aloud to and with the family. Mm -hmm. It's a Christmas story, and it's all about it's about a lot of stuff it's about a lot of stuff and it's and that's a lot of fun to read out loud because all the characters in that subterranean world speak with different accents french english china russian japanese so wow. i phoneticize the accent it makes it a little more difficult to read but it's a lot more fun when you open your voice and you say i am the keeper of a memory yeah, I no, love that. That's that's like the holy clear. He's like the Pope, the keeper of memory. You speak like this, like an old Italian vampire. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like it. So, and there's also a recording. I did an audio of it. Uh, doing doing the it, different uh, accents. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, he says there's a, a, a an orange prince, and he's got a French accent. And he says, me, I like to be polished. <laughs> I got it. I'm going to have to check it out myself. I didn't realize. Oh, it's it. a fun, it's a good book to read because there's a lot in it, a lot of stuff, but it's also very entertaining. King Beryl the Blue, the rare, the true. Speaks with a German accent. He rules everything. He will be ruled in, ruled out, ruled up, ruled down, ruled above, ruled under. You know, you had some fun in this. You definitely had some fun in doing. Oh this. yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a fun piece, you know. Yeah, and uh, and a meaningful piece. Mm -hmm. It's got yeah. good value. Yeah. Well, you, you inspire me, Paul. You inspired me as a kid at fourteen, and you inspire me now when I hear about what you've been through and how you've turned it into, you know. Uh, I I guess I I a learning experience and going forward and and uh it's just really nice to see so anyhow well, thank you thank you very yeah. much you know it's uh you only got one choice in this world either you go forward or you don't go forward <laughs> yeah it's true yeah you're right you're right yeah but you, uh -huh. you you know you hit it you hit it straight on so that's that's pretty cool so anyhow thank you so much for being on the show i appreciate you and uh i i just hope that your art continues to bring you joy. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. The pleasure right. spending time with you, John. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that, Paul, very much.
and stay well. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming, and uh, please check us out also on YouTube.com slash That's Classic TV, where you can actually watch and see the celebrities that are on the show. Thanks again. Bye-bye.